Hey, everybody, it is Rajiv. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to join our email list at 99pages.club. So each month, I send out two emails. No spam, I promise. One is a summary of the episodes we've released on the podcast in the past month, but the second is a what I'm reading now list. You know, I get asked for book recommendations all the time, so I will send out a monthly summary of stimulating nonfiction reads worthy of your time. I promise there'll be gems in there. That's 99pages.club to join our email list. Now, let's get to the show. I want to tell you a story. This is Nick Heenig. He's a colleague of mine from Larkspur, California. On my birthday, when I turned 39, I decided I needed to make a change. I remember we were having dinner. We were having dinner in Tiburon, California, and while I was at dinner, I got a phone call from the doctor. Said, "Hey, everything looks good except your cholesterol. Your cholesterol is creeping up towards a number that we got to start thinking about putting you on a statin." For those who aren't aware, a statin is a class of medicine used to lower cholesterol. It works by reducing the amount of cholesterol made by the liver and helping the liver remove cholesterol that is already in the blood. Normally, once you start taking statin drugs, it can be dangerous to stop. My family, like a lot of families, has family history of high cholesterol. And I was scared. I was scared. I had a family friend who was a cardiologist who I went to go see after this call from my GP who said, your cholesterol is a little high and we can, we can do two things. We can put you on a statin right now and you'll be on, your, on a statin for the rest of your life. Or I want you to read a book called How Not to Die. And I remember my, like my eyes came out of my head when he, when he said that. And I said, come again? What's this book called? Welcome to a very special edition of 99 Pages, y'all. We're talking with Dr. Michael Greger, known worldwide for his books, How Not to Die, How Not to Diet, among others. He's also the founder of NutritionFacts.org. He's on a mission to help the world make better decisions on how they eat. Bottom line, we are manipulated in the Western diet to eat way too much animal protein, and we should be eating more fruits and vegetables. Like, well... So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider rating us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings mean a ton to us. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Dr. Gregor, you have written several books. You're a prolific public speaker. You have a wonderful charity, nutritionfacts.org, specializing in presenting fact-based nutrition to audiences around the world. In an information age, why is it so impossible to get a straight answer on what is healthy and what is not? Well, you know, that's why I started it. I mean, I remember in med school, simple questions like, uh, you know, should you take a multivitamin or not? I mean, you just could not find good answers to it because of the corrupting power of commercial influence. I mean, these industries are so powerful. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the processed food industry alone, trillion-dollar industry. You know, most consumer goods you may buy once a year, once every couple years, but food is like, that's where the money is. Um, And some food is more profitable than others, right? I mean, the reason 
that you know the 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 you know the CEO of Coca-Cola doesn't you know start selling broccoli is because not because they want to like you know contribute to the childhood obesity epidemic but because they want to you know satisfy their you know next quarter for their shareholders and that means selling brown sugar water for a couple bucks a bottle and dirt cheap and it costs a few pennies to make it um, I mean, that's where the money is, right? You, the, the healthiest foods are the worst things to sell. Fruits and vegetables, they go bad. They rot in the shelf. You want a snack cake that sits on the shelf for a few weeks, right? I mean, that's where the money is. I think we need to take a second and recognize how profound this is. You know, if you're an average American, you eat three times a day, 365 days a year. Each one of those meals may seem relatively inexpensive, but in aggregate, that's thousands and thousands of dollars, which are votes that create massive uh, companies with incredible power and self-interest and the ability to manipulate how we think about food. And then, of course, there's big pharma and the healthcare industry that's profiting off of these epidemics of lifestyle disease. So it's very hard to kind of get it, like what the underlying science is, what's the truth in all this? And so that's why I started nutritionfacts.org, because the answers are out there. I mean, you go to the peer-reviewed scientific literature, the medical journals. I mean, the, the, the experiments have been done. We have the research. But between there and the public is this swirling corporate smokescreen that's trying to muddy the waters, trying to downplay or dismiss, deny any negative aspects of their products, or, and, or promote or just make out of whole cloth purported benefits to their products. And so the poor consumer is left not knowing what's true or not. Like, is, 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 does milk do a body good? Or is that just some like marketing slogan dreamt up by the, by the dairy producers, right? Or maybe the dairy producers really do think milk does a body good, and so you know the, they're lining their pockets, but at the same time, they really think they're doing the best for your family. It's hard to know what the truth is, but there's actually been experiments where you randomize people to drink different kinds of milk, and you see what happens, and you know. And so, and, uh, and so that's why Nutrition Facts was born, because there's just this desperate need for some kind of objective analysis. Let's just see what the science says, and, and, and go from there because diet is the single most important uh, factor in how long one lives. According to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest study of risk factors in history, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the number one cause of death in these United States is the American diet. Bumping tobacco now to number two. Cigarettes only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills many more. So it's the single most important decision we make and our families make in terms of health and longevity, also leading cause of disability. And so if there were ever a decision in life to be based on evidence, it should be the most important of health decisions, right? I mean, other decisions in life, you know, the bar is lower. You buying a, a new toaster on Amazon or something, the opinion of some total random stranger in a review may actually be useful to you, right? But when it comes to life and death decisions, you don't want to just like what the Checkout Aisle magazine says or what some dude at the gym said, but you really want to, if there's any decision to be based on science, it should be the most important of decisions. 
And so that's what, that's where, that's how Nutrition Facts was born. All right. So let's talk about the problem. How do we define the standard American diet? And how does it differ from other countries? Or I guess these days, the standard American diet is more Western, right? It's, it's uh, globalization has taken it overseas far and wide. What is this diet that we're talking about? And how does it differ from the way it, uh, you know, it, it used to be, if you will? Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, our diets are globally becoming more and more like the standard American diet. We're exporting we're kind of uh, kind of the Tysonization or the McDonaldization of uh, of food chains around the world. You know, I talk about the Okinawa Japanese in my new book, How Not to Age, uh, one of the longest living populations in the world, or at least used to be. Now there's so many fast food joints. It's actually one of the least healthy um, prefects in all of Japan, with the highest obesity rates. And we have exported this model. And what's this model? The model is about is centered around ultra-processed food. About 60% of calories in American diet is uh, what are called from ultra-processed foods, which are foods which, ha which bear little resemblance to whatever foodstuffs they originally came from, packed with artificial flavors and colors and, and all sorts of food additives that aren't really found in a typical kitchen or something. They're basically industrial formulations to hook into our biological triggers for salt and sugar and oil and fat, um, uh, to get us to buy more, um, but associated with diabetes and obesity and, all, and chronic diseases on that list. That's about 60%. Another 30% is from animal products, meat, dairy, and eggs. Then about 10% are from whole plant foods, foods that's grown like fruits and vegetables and beans, whole grains, things like that. That's pretty much the standard American diet, which is increasingly becoming the standard Western diet and then the standard global diet. And you say, well, wait a second, why? What's behind it? Again, it's the cheapest dirt, cheap ingredients, um, lasts forever on the shelf. It's just this is where the money is. You can't make money selling real food, right? You don't make money selling onions. You make money selling funyuns. I mean, it's just that. I mean, that's just. I mean, that that it's that's, that's just the hard truth. Um, and so, so there's a budget. So there are ads on TV for funyuns. They're not ads on TV for sweet potatoes. Or you're never going to see a Super Bowl ad for, you know, carrots or something. I mean, it's just there's no money out there. And so what's being promoted, you know, what's, what's on the billboards, you know, what? I mean, it's just the, the system is set up to really we have to take our own health into our own hands because the system is, 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 is pushing us really in the wrong direction. It's pushing us towards Funyuns, not onions. I, I love that. <laughs> so after reading your book, the number one thing you ask your readers to do is to eat more fruits and vegetables, whole fruits and whole vegetables. And you hone in on this specific kind of vegetable, a cruciferous vegetable. Uh, and I had never really heard that before. What is a cruciferous vegetable and what does it offer our diets that we typically aren't getting uh, in more conventional uh, meals. Oh, absolutely! I'm telling you, I mean, you said my favorite word. Um, uh, so this is broccoli, kale, uh, cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. It's a family of vegetables. Uh, people have this idea that, like you know, eat fruits and vegetables as if fruits and vegetables are kind of homogenous. And there are some nutrients like vitamin C found widely throughout the plant kingdom, right? You want vitamin C? Yeah, you can get it from bell peppers, you can get it from tropical fruits, you can get it from broccoli, you can get it from, you know, oranges. But 
there are certain plants that have certain components not found anywhere else in the plant kingdom. And cruciferous vegetables are, 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 uh, um, are kind of the classic example um, uh, containing precursor compounds that turn into something called sulforaphane, which has anti-cancer properties, and on down the list. This long list of it boosts your liver's detoxifying enzymes, and there's all sorts of wonderful... And the thing is, you can eat all the vegetables in the world, but you'll get zero sulforaphane if you don't eat cruciferous vegetables, right? And so you can eat all the... Uh, so, so that's why I created this Daily Dozen Checklist. Of all the healthiest of healthy foods, I encourage people to fit into their daily routine with the acknowledgement that all foods aren't alike. And if you don't eat those certain foods, you're going to miss out on those benefits. And so cruciferous vegetables is on my daily dozen. I want people to eat some sort of cruciferous vegetable every single day. Also, a tablespoon of ground flax seeds, for example. Flax seeds have a compound called lignans, these anti-cancer compounds, proven in randomized controlled trials to do all sorts of amazing things. Um, and there's a hundred times more lignans and flax seeds than basically any other food. All right, 99 Pages family, I need to come clean. Uh, so just over a year ago, I did read Dr. Greger's book and I decided to become a plant-based vegan. So you didn't see me through my 99 Pages work, but I was in a bad spot in 2020 and 2021. Uh, I was struggling as many of us were through the pandemic. I had become a new father. And then in August of 21, my family and I were evacuated from the Caldor wildfire in California. And so through all that stress and chaos, let's just say I put on my COVID-19. And then Nick Keenig, my colleague who introduced this episode, handed me Dr. Greger's book. I also watched the Netflix documentary Game Changers and read Russell Simmons' book Happy Vegan. So after a few iterations, I decided to dive in. And I don't want to sound too hyperbolic. I got to say, though, I lost a ton of weight. I have a lot of energy and I'm kind of aging in reverse. I have pictures of me from 2021 where I literally look 10 to 15 years older than I do now. Um, so in addition to improving my health, keep in mind, the livestock industry produces just as much carbon and methane as the transportation industry, contributing significantly to climate change. And as one who evacuated a wildfire, I wanted no part of that. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that, especially as a new father, I couldn't turn a blind eye anymore to the morality of industrial meat production. I can't say with any certainty that the animals we cage and kill in our food industry have less valid emotions and lives than I do. And so I gotta admit, just my personal opinion, going vegan has been good for my soul. I grew up in a home where food is what brings people together. This is Nick Keenig again from the introduction to this episode. A meal is what brings people together. My family's from Argentina. My, I grew up in Texas. You know, we'd have steak probably two nights a week, three nights a week. And if it wasn't steak, it was chicken. And so we, we ate some form of animal protein every night. Becoming vegan wasn't overnight. It was not a cold turkey approach. But I'm also the first to say that I'm not 100% vegan. And I'm okay with that. If I go to a restaurant, I will absolutely try my best to find a way to make something, if not vegan, vegetarian. When it's all done, I feel better. My body is adjusted to a point now where my diet changes the way I feel. And what I have uncovered 
and this has come with lots of trial and error, is that I can have a little bit of meat, a little bit of chicken and be okay, where, where my body reacts more strongly is with the dairy. You know, Nick, what I love about what you're saying is it's aspirational. You're not, you know, uh, so strict that uh, you're going to starve. Like if you're out with buddies and you're going to aspire to be a vegan and, and really what you're doing is you were trying to make better decisions about what you put in your body. So that leads me to the question, what do you do when you have guests over for dinner? To what extent are you imposing oh, yeah. your vegan aspirations on those you're inviting into your house? Yeah. So uh, this, the short answer is a little bit, but not entirely. So we, we recently had some friends over and... We went with a Mediterranean theme for our for our friends, and we made everything everything was vegan with the exception of uh, a cut of steak, and but a lot of what was vegan had cheese in it, but it was vegan cheese, and it caught a lot of people by surprise when we did that. So it was um, when 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 they asked us, "Hey, what's in here?" and we explained to them what it was, and they were appreciative. So. It, it didn't create any animosity. It didn't change the experience. It didn't change anything, really. So let's say we have some folks who are interested in pursuing a plant-based diet, a vegan diet. Um, what were some of the like things you noticed changing in your body first? Uh, what did you see that was, let's say, positive? And if there was anything negative, what did you notice? Thanks to the diet, when it comes to energy, I no longer get that afternoon lull. In the past, I used to think, oh my gosh, you know, you know, if I have a burrito in the afternoon for lunch at noon, I'd be like, oh yeah, cool, two o'clock, three o'clock, I'll go get my cup of coffee and wake myself back up. What I found was that it wasn't actually the burrito that was doing it. It was the, the animal-based protein that was in the burrito. Because then when I swapped that chicken burrito for a veggie burrito, with no cheese, no sour cream, essentially a vegan burrito, I didn't get that dip in energy. And that right there has been a huge, huge, huge benefit from this because my afternoons, I don't get that, that, that one hour plus of absolutely zapped energy level where oh, I don't want to take calls. I don't want to uh, do any research. I don't want to do any of the other things that I know I should be doing right now in my, in my professional career uh, or my professional day, because I'm absolutely zoinked or zonked or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. I, I got that energy boost too. Uh, look, you grew up in Texas, you're Argentinian meat was clearly a staple in your household. And there are still people I know that are like, Oh man, I could never give this up. Um, how would you guide someone who is interested in a plant-based diet or making some adjustments? How would you guide them to approach this? Cause I mean, if you can do it, it feels like anyone can do it. If anybody's wondering whether or not this is achievable, I will tell them right now it 100% is the key is that they ha you have to do it on your own terms. And what I mean by doing it on your own terms, what that meant for me was doing it in phases. When I started this diet, I started it off as what I affectionately referred to as the office vegan. I work at LinkedIn, and I'm very lucky to work at a, at a, at a company that provides beautiful food and a beautiful cafe 
and beautiful coffee bar and wonderful, uh, just wonderful food all around. And so I had, I started my journey by saying, anytime I go to the office, I'm going to be a vegan because everything is labeled and they make it so simple and it's so incredibly well prepared. And so I went to the office and I held myself to that standard. It used, it required a little bit of discipline, not a ton. And when I did it, I felt great. And then I lived my non-vegan life when I left the building. But when I was in the building, I was a vegan. And I, and that was how I dipped my toe in this process or in this, in this shift. And, and I think that the way that the reason it worked was because it didn't interfere with anybody else in the beginning. I'm married. I have two kids. If I come home and I tell my wife and my kids, Hey guys, this half of the refrigerator is mine. I'm going to eat totally different meals than you all. Don't touch my food. Don't touch my stuff. That won't feel very good to me. And that level of discipline, I would argue, is at least for for some folks, it doesn't work for me, but for those that want to be ultra disciplined, that's the path that they have to take to make something like this work for them. For me, I made the first step in this journey. uh, I took that first step in a place where I could control everything without influencing or interfering with anybody else's day. And that's what I needed for, 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 for me to feel good while doing this. Vitamins, minerals, very high number, silica, hair and nails get longer. Other vitamins make your bones them stronger. Anti-wrinkle make you look younger. Cucumba, 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 cucumba. Ninety-five percent water, kidney cleanser, great hydrator, detox fiber, good regulator. Your body good things, don't be a cheater. Get the cucumba, cut it in a slice. You know, Dr. Gregor, the biggest surprise to me in your books was how horrible poultry can be. I mean, many of us are taught that white meat is leaner and healthier But good Lord, your books put poultry in line with a toxic substance. Can you explain what our listeners should keep in mind when choosing chicken as their healthy option? Well, I mean, 100 years ago, um, you know, 100 years ago, it was one of the leanest meats, 2% fat by weight. Now it's more than 10 times that, over 20% fat, more fat than protein. And it's because we genetically modified these animals through through, uh, selective breeding. And then we're left with this food safety problem. It really comes down to how these animals are raised on today's concentrated animal feeding operations or so-called factory farms. And so chicken um, and poultry in general, leading cause of Campylobacter, which is the number one bacterial foodborne illness, and also Salmonella, which is the number one foodborne illness killer and hospitalizer in the country. Uh, most chickens, uh, most chicken parts in the store have, you know, fecal bacteria on them. You can you can culture them off, plate them in a petri dish, and it's and it's because we raise tens of thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds to lie beak to beak atop their own waste. It's really just kind of a breeding ground for disease to try to keep them alive in such kind of unhygienic conditions. We dose them with antibiotics. We actually feed them antibiotics in the water in the feed, uh, not to uh, cure disease, but just to prevent 
um, disease and, and, and fatten them up faster in such kind of uh, cramped on hygienic conditions. And unfortunately, we're left at the other end um, with uh, issues surrounding um, uh, surrounding food safety. Yeah, so uh, this is something we definitely need to talk about, which is antibiotics. You know, if I get sick and I want an antibiotic, you know, I have to go through a doctor to get a prescription, then I got to go to the pharmacy, a very regulated environment. And I was dumbfounded to learn the extent to which antibiotics are given t- in animal feed as if it were candy. And not only does that make, you know, pharmaceutical companies incredibly wealthy, but it is very dangerous. Can you talk us through it's, what it's, is yeah, happening? It's outrageous. Right. We need we need a prescription. You want an antibiotic, you actually need a prescription for, for you or your family member. But in feed stores, they sell it by the ton. Um, uh, and they lace it right in the food. Um, and these are the clinically important antibiotics. These aren't like animal antibiotics. They're using tetracyclines and penicillins and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, ceftriaxone. These are really powerful, important, uh, you know, clinically important drugs for human medicine. And we are losing these options as uh, antibiotics become, these bacteria become more and more resistant to the antibiotics. Because, you know, you can, you can blanket a chicken shed with antibiotics. And so what's the only bacteria that survives this, this kind of the selective pressure is the ones that have a little more resistance. And then you breed those in particular. And those are the ones that get out into the environment, spread through their manure. Um, uh, and so then when we get a foodborne illness, when we get salmonella, for example, all of a sudden the first line drugs don't work. Um, and we are slowly losing... Um, some of our most important kind of end of the line antibiotics. And there's a concern we're going to enter into a post-antibiotic age where none of the antibiotics work for some of these bacteria. And, you know, how do you do surgery without antibiotics? You know, a simple scrape on the knee could, you know, end up being a mortal wound like it used to be. Um, and, and it's this, this injudicious use in animal agriculture by the ton of medically important antibiotics. And every single medical and public health association in the world has come out against this practice. But the reason it continues gives you a sense of the combined might of both animal agriculture and big pharma, the drug industry that is the one that sells and profits from these drugs. The combined might of those two very important lobbies has prevented any movement here in the United States, any legislative movement to try to ban or cut down on this practice. There has been some progress over in Europe um, that's been made, but here in the United States, um, fortunately, uh, special interests have won the, won the day. You know, all this talk about antibiotics, it's a great opportunity for us to chat about your book, How to Survive a Pandemic. You released this book at the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdowns to help most of the world wrapped their heads around what was happening and why and what we can do about it. Uh, And I was shocked to learn the extent to which our global food supply chains and practices affect public health. Uh, So could you crystallize for the reader, what is it about food supply chains that could actually lend themselves to other pandemics uh, in the future. Yeah, well, you know, over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. So basically, they can emerge from where? Mostly from animals. 
Right, the AIDS virus is blaming the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Mad cow disease this is because we turned cows into carnivores and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 arose from the, the exotic wild animal trade, we think. But our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, it was not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but largely made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time we might not be so lucky. COVID-19 may just be kind of a dress rehearsal for an even greater threat, um, and that is these um, influenza viruses, particularly these avian influenza viruses, which have just extraordinarily high case fatality rates, like 40% case fatality rate, and the few people that have become infected should one of these viruses acquire easy human-to-human -human transmission and trigger the next pandemic. It could make you know, COVID uh, you know, look like nothing in comparison. And that's why we really need to change the way to reform the food system before it's too late. Um, you know, the sheer numbers of animals, the, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs, lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight. Put all these factors together and what you have is kind of the perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. Um, uh, but, you know, the bottom line is not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. You've been at this a long time, Dr. Greger, and uh, you clearly are passionate, you're intelligent, you're uh, a fighter. I just got to ask you, what is the hardest part of this journey you're on? Uh, you are fighting some incredibly powerful and entrenched institutions, you're fighting culture, you're fighting nostalgia. What is the hardest part of yeah. your job? Well, look, if it, if it wasn't, if it, we weren't talking about life and death, then, you know, it wouldn't be worth it, right? But we're literally talking about the leading reasons people are dying. And what just drives me nuts is the misinformation, right? And, and particularly, and it used to be mostly corporate misinformation. Um, where it's just like, you know, the, the, the industry, you know, like the tobacco industry, right? They had a vested interest in getting people to continue to smoke, to muddy the waters about the connection between tobacco and cancer, um, uh, just to continue to, to rake in the profits. Um, and we see a very similar uh, situation today, where we have just a mountain of evidence showing what the healthiest diet is, and, you know, very powerful, powerful corporate interests, which are trying to kind of fight back against that. Um, but, um, but, you know, now there's just a lot of kind of ideological misinformation where people aren't necessarily profiting from saying just absolute crazy stuff about nutrition. Um, but, and, you know, you see so much of that on the internet and everywhere. And in other areas, it's not, it's, it may not hurt anybody, right? If someone just makes up some crazy conspiracy theory about whatever and, you know, it's like, what harm is that doing? You know, maybe it'll sway a few votes here and there. But, I mean, if you tell people, you convince somebody that, you know, you really have to switch to a bacon and butter diet because that's really what's going to, you know, uh, make you healthy. I mean, you're putting people's lives at risk. I mean, you're like, you know, telling people, hey, why don't you pick up a loaded gun and just like, let's start juggling. It's really awesome. It's fun. Like, you know, no, get the kids involved. Right? Three times a day. Come on, everybody. Like, I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, so, I mean, that's what, that's what drives me. And look, 
at the end of the day, it's your body, your choice. Like if you want to smoke cigarettes or eat, you know, bacon or, or bungee jump or disconnect all the smoke alarms in your house, like do, do you, do you like, I mean, it, it's your body, your choice, but I want people to make decisions based on the predictable consequences of their actions. Right. And so, uh, you know, and so look, as long as you're cool with, you know, where, where your life's headed. Um, but, uh, but so many people, the way they eat is not based on the best available science, but because of like, you know, who knows where they heard it from. And so let them, so give them the, so all I care about is here, here, here's the evidence, do with it what you will. And as long as everybody has the, the, the science, well then, you know, my job is done as far as I'm concerned, let people make up their own mind. Um, but, uh, you know, there's still people out there who, you know, would change tonight if they just knew the, 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 the truth. Um, and so until I reach every one of those people, I'm going to keep hammering away. Man, so Dr. Gregor really got me thinking about the power of the food and drug industries on our daily lives. It's like watching a replay of the tobacco industry in the 1960s. So it got me wondering, what would it look like for a food company to be the antithesis of a McDonald's or a Tyson's? What would that company sell? What would its values be? Well, I needn't look any further than my nearest farmer's market to meet the owners of Vermont Cheeseless. It's a company that makes gourmet, dairy-free cheesecakes. You heard me right, a gourmet vegan cheesecake in Vermont, a state renowned for the dairy. I sat down with this mother-daughter team to understand what market dynamics they saw in plant-based eating when they made the decision to dive into the company. I'm the one who is making the filling and the crust of the cheesecake. Mm-hmm. So I'll usually start making the crust. It takes about an hour and a half. This is Isabella Shea. She's 15 years old. And when she's not in school or playing sports, she's the second half of the mother-daughter team that owns and operates Vermont Cheeseless. Isabella may be young, but she already has the maturity of a seasoned entrepreneur. Then I'll do filling and mom is usually in the kitchen with me. She could be doing emails or ordering stuff. We're we're always ordering something. Food ingredients. Food ingredients. um, You know, and we're talking the whole time. uh, Not necessarily about the business sometimes. (laughs) We're always kind of chatting when we're doing something. So we could be talking about school or just Mm -hmm. life. (laughs) Erin is Isabella's mother. She's the mother of four children and leads the Vermont Cheeseless Operation. I met Erin on my recent trip to a farmer's market. She carries a welcoming energy around her. You can tell she really enjoys her work. The rest of the family is still surprised that we work so well together, (laughs) truthfully. Yeah, they think we'd get sick of each other at this point. (laughs) So, like, let's talk about how customers react to you. So, Erin or Isabella, let's say you're at a farmer's market. You're trying to hand out some samples, sell some cheesecakes. Like, 
what do they say when they're like when you're like, hey, here's a vegan cheesecake. Do you want to try it out? You know, folks that are vegan or dairy free or gluten free, they come running like I found my people and they taste it and they love it. But we were we gave out thousands and thousands of samples. You got a lot this of samples. Summer. Yeah. And so that's where you tell where your competition is, because as soon as you say, would you like to try some cheesecake, sir, to the maybe like I'll stereotype, but like male 65 year old there. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And we're like, yeah, it's a plant based, gluten free, vegan. And they're like, oh, we're all set. Thank you very much. Yeah, they, they so... turn away. They don't. <laughs> don't want it but yeah. you know then usually most of the time when they do try it they're like oh this is right this is really good they're just not looking necessarily for the product so neither of you are vegan though so i'm curious how did you come to own and operate vermont cheeseless in the first place what was that story like <laughs> well it's uh it, in some ways it sort of fell in my lap truthfully um, I, you know, three years ago, I had left my job at the University of Vermont to be a stay-at-home mom with my, what were one-year-old twins at the time, who are turning five tomorrow. So about a year ago, I'd said, I'm ready to go back to work, do something part-time. Same time, my neighbor, who is in his 90s, his health wasn't super well, uh, has been running this company as his retirement hobby, so to speak, he and his wife, vegans, this uh, had been selling it super small scale for about a decade. I always thought it was a super hip company, right? Because I had been eating it for a couple of years, not somebody who would have been seeking out seeking out vegan cheesecake, and really loved it. And I, I eat, you know, we are we are foodies. We're so privileged in Vermont. We eat mostly local food. We grow a lot. We raise some. We trade. We, you know, we're living the life up here in the <laughs> land of milk and honey. Uh, so I didn't feel the need to seek out a cheesecake, vegan cheesecake. So when I tried it and loved it, I was pretty hooked on it, frankly. I, we're, we weren't lovers of baked cheesecake, real no. cheesecake. Anyways, not our thing. would be more whipped cheesecake yeah. people, which Cook is cheese. what's nice about this as a raw product. And so I always, before the company was even for sale and thinking about purchasing it, I had in my like heart, I liked this company. I thought it was my 90 year old hip vegan neighbor is running this cheesecake company. Like, I can do that. Like, that's so cool. I thought it was cool before. And I thought, hey, we could run a vegan cheesecake company out of our kitchen. <laughs> that is absolutely awesome. Uh, so, Isabella, I would love to ask you a question. You're young, you're smart, you're a leader in your generation here. Uh, I want you to help me understand what it is like for young people who are making decisions when it comes to plant-based alternatives to animal products. Do you think that young people are more open to these alternatives um, and if so, why do you think that is? A hundred percent. I think that young people, especially the next generation, is very much so more um, willing to try different foods that are gluten-free or dairy-free or vegan just because there's a lot more information out that is accessible to more people. You know, uh, a lot of people are vegan just because they like the environment. They want it to strive. And majority of my generation is very involved in that. And in default, they turn to food as a way to show their um, 
I guess, beliefs. And so I think they are a lot more willing to step in that direction of vegan food. You know, there's something so beautiful in what you're saying here, Isabella. And what that, what that is to me is even when you feel powerless, even though you're young, you may not have franchise in a given situation, you still find power and virtue in the decision of what you eat. And that actually makes a huge difference. I love it. Um, Aaron, I want to ask you about kind of the market research you did when you decided to acquire this company. What did you see in the market that made you think, you know, there might be an opportunity here. And I'll categorically say, like, as we're talking, I'm eating one of your pumpkin and spice cheesecakes. <laughs> and it's delicious. Like, I would never have guessed that this is a vegan cheesecake. So I'm curious how you did market research and what you thought, uh, what you discovered as you were researching. So not a lot of tasty vegan products on the market. You know, this is the type, we get a lot of people who, buy our cheesecake that love it and they are either eating it for uh, allergy purposes or ethical reasons, what have you, but they love to give it to people that don't know it's vegan and sort of play trick on them. So I've always thought that, and it, and it does, as you said, right, you would not necessarily know this is a vegan cheesecake. So um, that's what set this product aside. And when you do market research really quickly, you know, there's not a whole lot of competitors to what the product we're selling. We believe that right. we're creating a higher prod, a higher value, wholer food, healthier option for this particular niche. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a vegan myself, I'll tell you, when I get vegan alternative products, uh, I always have to check the ingredients because in order to simulate the texture or the color or some nuances of the animal-based product, there's a ton of like additives, preservatives, and just a bunch of garbage that I find just as unhealthy in my body as anything that would have been in the meat product line to begin with. So to look at your label and to be able to recognize all the ingredients and have them, you know, be in the English dictionary and nothing crazy out of a chemistry book, I actually really appreciate. Um, Isabella, I'd love to ask you about, let's say, like your favorite customer moment over the summer. Is there is there one that stands out to you? We go to the Virgin's Farmer's Market, one of our local markets, and it is, you know, more local people. Like, I go to school with some of the people. I know teachers, staff, um, and there is this little girl who comes to the market. Every market, I've seen her in Shelburne as well. She's probably about 10 or 11, we guessed. And she comes to the market and she'll go up to our booth and mm -hmm. she wants one jar and she always pays for it with her own money yep. that she mm -hmm. makes. And she has, I don't know how she gets it, mm -hmm. probably like allowance. Mm -hmm. And every single week she'll come up to us and we'll be like, what kind of, what flavor do you want? And she'll mm -hmm. pick one and then she'll be on her merry way. And usually <laughs> she'll eat it right then, even though it's frozen and she'll just be like stabbing it. But you know, it's great. This has happened I don't know. All like, seasons. All seasons. So it's, <laughs> yeah. we've gotten a lot of interactions with this little girl. That is so sweet. Uh, Aaron, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, is there a customer moment or something from this summer that uh, has really uh, meant meant something to you? So my mom lives locally and they are recent move moved to Vermont. And so they come to the markets and 
Uh, my parents definitely thought it was one of my more crazier ideas to buy a vegan business with uh, four kids in a pandemic with prices as, as inflated as they're ever going to be. Uh, so here I am and just having the best day. And my mom's sitting behind me in the chair at the market. And it is just customer after customer. Like, I love your product. I love your product. Oh my God, give me a hug. I mean, you wouldn't, I'm, I'm talking maybe this went on for two hours straight. I couldn't, I had no conversation with my mom. And I'm in school this whole time. Yeah, this is, you're at a meet actually. I'm, a meet. I'm not even here. So and I, so I, uh, I would, I, the joy was just living that with my mom watching, right? Because I could have gone home and told her I had the best day and talked all about this fantastic company that we've created and everybody loves, but she just wouldn't have got it. And my parents wouldn't, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, Aaron, sure. For you. <laughs> but she witnessed it and it was like, this is awesome. Like my mom's sitting here. These people love the product. Like Izzy and I did it all summer. <laughs> We're winding down the season. And it was like, this is cool. <laughs> All right, I got one more question for you, Dr. Gregor. You got another one in you? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think many of us look at you and your career as iconic. I mean, you're a role model. Uh, I also work a corporate job. Uh, I think many of us who are working professionals early in our career, uh, we work the jobs because we got student loans to pay off. We're trying to sustain a lifestyle, uh, support young families. But in the back of our heads, we all think and know that we want to do something that serves our fellow human beings. And I look to you as a role model in this regard. You walked away from what could have been a very lucrative medical practice to devote yourself uh, in service to our community and to help fight these corporate forces that are so intimidating so that we can eat healthier and live longer. What is that journey like? What should those of us who are aspiring to give more of our professional selves and service to others learn uh, from you and your journey? Uh, because I think it's nothing short of heroic. I mean, it's it's really all about looking yourself in the mirror every day. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, where are people? Where's people's sense of satisfaction of like accomplishment in life? Like, what do you? Looking back, what is, what's your legacy? Like, I mean, I can't imagine doing work that I didn't think was making the world a better place. Like, what are we here on this earth if but to make the world a better place? Now, thankfully, I had this tremendously, you know, privileged background, you know, grew up in this country and had good education. And I mean, and so, you know, I, I realize I'm in this privileged position, which just means I have more uh, responsibility to use whatever kind of inborn talents um, to, to to do the most good I could possibly do. And yes, I could do private practice and maybe reach a couple dozen people every day. But, you know, now I'm reaching millions of people a day, right? I'm kind of doing medicine on a broader scale. Um, and not, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with primary care. I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful. Um, and, you know, you can really touch the lives of so many people. But now, I mean, it's just kind of orders of magnitude different. And you don't have to change your whole career. I mean, look, nights and weekends. I mean, I mean, I, w I, mean, I was practicing medicine and still doing this, like, you know, going around and speaking. Um, and so, you know, I had my day job, 
But now, you know, in your own little studio somewhere, you can get in front of a camera, in front of a microphone, and you can, you know, change lives, um, even if, you know, that's not necessarily a whole new calling for you. So, I mean, we just live in this unprecedented time to, you know, reach people. And there's so much garbage out there, right? There's so much craziness out there. And I know... So many people, you they see that and they're like, I don't want to have any part of it. But don't you realize, no, we need the same people even more. The more craziness out there, the more important it is to have voices of reason um, and, you know, and to say, look, here's here's some evidence I found. You know, uh, I want to share it with you. Let me know. This is what I think. I want to know what you think. You know, let's go through this together and figure it out. Um, but you know, there are important questions in the world with life and death consequences. I'm honored to be part of it, um, and encourage people to join, join any mission that they, they can. I mean, look, you can volunteer on the weekends, you can do anything, but I've just found, I'm just, I, I have that satisfaction in life. And like, I'm gonna, you know, you can imagine the emails and the phone calls I get from people whose lives I change. And it's just like, Oh my God, you know, and of course I just hear one in a thousand people, right? The other people, you know, I mean, the book sold over a million copies in 36 languages. Like, you know, you just, the, the ripples, you know, it's just like, I can't imagine doing any other work and would encourage everyone to use whatever talents they have and whatever um, they're interested in, whatever they enjoy, to try to find that Venn diagram of something they can do to make the world better. Pull up. Wait a minute now. All right, 99 Pages, that was our talk with Dr. Michael Greger, author of How Not to Die, How Not to Diet, How to Survive a Pandemic, the accompanying cookbooks, and the founder of NutritionFacts.org. I encourage you to check all of those out. A special thanks to Aaron and Isabella of Vermont Cheeseless. You can visit their website, VermontCheeseless.com, to check out how they make such a delicious vegan dessert. I've already got my holiday order in. And a special thank you to my friend and colleague, Nick Heenig, for sharing his story and being my partner in this health journey. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider rating us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings help us out a ton. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.